You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Romans chapter 3, verse 9 says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin." But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is the boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And Lord, as we come to this text, just this incredible passage that brings us hope from this fallen condition of sin that we're in, we pray that just by the power of your spirit, you would just speak to every man, every woman, every older person, and every youth in this place, and truly show us that we are just uh, under sin apart from Christ. But Lord, also bring about that good news of redemption that's found in you. Lord, as the enemy would bring excuses to our minds of ways that we could stand before you in our flesh, we pray that just our mouths would be stopped and just we'd be shown our sin, we'd be shown our depravity, and we'd be shown your holiness and your justice and your goodness, Lord, and that it would lead us to repentance. We pray all these things. Looking forward to this text today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
Last week, we looked at Romans, and you can be seated. We looked at Romans chapter 9, or chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. And we looked at what I call the black backdrop. Uh, and, and technically, chapter 1 through 3, verse 20, is this black backdrop. If you were to go into a, a jewelry store and go to buy a diamond ring or a fancy necklace, you know, the jeweler would place in front of you on the counter this dark velvet cloth or pad of some kind. Uh, and then upon that dark cloth, she would place or he would place uh, the, the gem, the jewel. And in contrast, the, the gem would shine so brightly and sparkle so great over that dark black backdrop. In Romans chapter 1, the backdrop began with just showing us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and all godliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, worshiping the creature rather than worshiping the creator, not thankful to the creator, uh, exchanging the truth of God for the lie, and practicing all kinds of pagan and heathen practices, the Gentile is guilty of sin. Chapter 2 shows us that the Jew is also guilty of sin, being shown his sin by the law. He's just as condemned, just as sinful, and is not found righteous by the deeds of the law that he practices. He falls short of God's glory. This darkness, as we read, kind of culminated in verses 9 through 20 as we were shown that nobody, nobody at all is righteous. Not one person, nobody seeks after them, uh, seeks after the Lord. And not only are we sinners, and not only are we not righteous, but we actually go so far as to actively pursue sin, as far as actively pursuing uh, wickedness. We are just so depraved apart from Christ. And that is dark. That is, that is bad news for us. That is an accusation. But we need to be accused so that we can fully appreciate what God has saved us from, so that we can realize our need for a Savior and, and, uh, and surrender to the good news of the gospel. The dark backdrop is that not only are we depraved and are we sinners, but we actually actively seek out that wickedness. We're sinners separated from God. But here in verses 21 through 29, the beautiful gem of the glorious gospel is laid out for us to just applaud and rejoice in. This good news, this righteousness that comes through faith. We're going to see this week that we're saved from this universal sin that we've read about by the gem of the gospel. Verse 21 starts out just like your heart would jump to see that diamond placed in, it, in its first appearance. There's the first appearance of this good news is found in the first two words of verse 21. But now. You are so depraved, you are so wicked, and you're so a sinner, not seeking after God, and you're actually seeking after wickedness instead. But now. Those two words are incredible to the believer. Verses 21 through 29 have been called the greatest paragraph in the Bible. Some have called it kind of the center of the Bible. Now, of course, all books and chapters and verses are inspired. Obadiah and Amos, great books. Leviticus, a great book. But as we come to chapter 3, verse 21, we, we just have this weighty passage, this passage that is thick with glorious doctrine. 
that we can just savor, you know. Uh, I felt like as I've been studying chapter 3 that it's like I'm mowing my lawn on the first cut in the spring, you know, where it's still pretty wet and it's really thick and it's really tall and my mower is just having trouble just, you know, getting through it all and the engine's bogging down and the grass is getting caught inside and kind of, you know, and you kind of have to pick it up and let it, you know, pick it up, put it down, push, pick it up, you know, and I'm just, it's just so thick. May the Lord give us teeth to chew on this awesome passage today. As we look at these first two words, but now. These are some of the greatest words in the Bible. Words that should cause great joy to the person that's been shown they are under sin. They are slaves of sin. They are not good. They are not good. A similar passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just flip over to the right one book in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. And Paul tells us, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul lays out that black backdrop. Don't you know, if you are unrighteous, if you are guilty, you won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. But verse 11, lay out the gem. And such were some of you. But... You were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. In 1 Corinthians 6, that phrase, but you, and in Romans chapter 3, the phrase, but now, is this light that is shining through the darkness and the bleakness of our sin and it's a beacon showing us this good news of salvation in Jesus. But now. You know, all of the movies or all of the books that you've read where there's tragedy and there's evil taking place, but then the hero rides in on a white stallion or in an Apache helicopter or something like that, you know, and, and everyone cheers and yes, salvation has come. Thank you, Bruce Willis, you know. We have here a much better hero. We have Jesus swooping in and saying, yes, you are depraved. You are wicked. But now, but now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. This righteousness of God being revealed. Now, if you'll just hop back to, you don't even really have to hop, you know it. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we see that the wrath of God is revealed. And we're shown all the reasons why and how the wrath of God is revealed. But now we come to a passage that shows us the rightness, the righteousness of God is revealed. And we see, first of all, it's apart from the law. It's apart from the Ten Commandments. It's apart from working it out by deeds of the flesh. Now the problem isn't with the law, the problem is with us. The problem is with we who try to keep the law. And yet Jesus provides us a righteousness that's apart from the law. His justifying activity in us takes place apart from the old covenant and in the new covenant where it's all about what he has done. 
The law is good, but it cannot make you righteous. The law is kind of like a detector. It's like an x-ray. You know, you place it over your arm and you can see you have a broken arm, but the x-ray can't fix that. You place the law over your heart and you're shown that you are an adulterer. You're a murderer, even in your heart and outside of your heart. You know, you're covetous. You're an idolater. You're a pagan. That's what the x-ray of the law shows you, or as Galatians says, the tutor of the law teaches you that you're under sin, that you're a slave to sin, but it can't fix you. There is a goodness, there is a healing, there is an innocence that comes, not by you trying your darndest to keep the law, but by Jesus having kept the law and by the blood that was shed in your place. This righteousness that's apart from the law was witnessed by the law and the prophets. It's nothing new. It's something that was prophesied of in the, in the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is on the road to, Damascus, or to Emmaus, and, you know, he's sharing with these, you know, disciples of his that, you know, just aren't seeing it. They're not seeing God's plan. They're not seeing that the, the Christ ought to suffer and die. And Jesus began in the Old Testament and showed them all of the cases that pointed to him. All of the cases that pointed towards the Messiah fulfilling the law. It was all witnessed by the law and the prophets. But now the righteousness of God has come. It's witnessed by the law and the prophets. It's, it's this beacon of light shooting forth. And in a couple chapters, we'll get to Romans 13, 11, where it says, knowing this, it's high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let's put on the armor of light. Let's get out of that black backdrop. Let's get out of that sinful state. Not by the works of our flesh, but it's high time to awaken. And today the Lord would knock on the door of your heart to awaken you out of slumber so that you can be righteous apart from the deeds of the law. Verse 22 says, Even the righteousness of God that's through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe for there's no difference. This righteousness of God, we see that, those, that phrase in verse 21 and 22. In 21, we see it's apart from the law. In verse 22, we see that it's through faith in Jesus. That is how we are innocent. That is how we are right. Not by keeping the Ten Commandments or the 613 that the Pharisees tried to keep, but by faith in Jesus. We see that it's to all and on all who would believe. This is where you fit in, you know, wherever you are. If you hear the gospel of Jesus is, is convicting you of sin and of his righteousness and of the judgment to come, you can surrender and respond to the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. You can have this righteousness of God placed upon you. And that is a big, big phrase. Our minds can't wrap around this righteousness of God. How great and how righteous is that righteousness it's perfect you know some say that the righteousness of god is his unswerving commitment to uphold what is right and that is true but there's actually so much more than that if when you say what's the righteousness of god you can actually say god 
He is righteousness. His name and his nature, the, you know, he decides what is right in terms of himself. It's his quality. It's his attribute. If you want to talk about right, you talk about Jesus. If you want to re uh, read a book on what's right, Jesus is the author. You know, just reading a, or uh, witnessing to a guy at the Oasis this week who just had some good questions, but just, you know, fighting against just the pleading of the Holy Spirit, you know, and he's just saying, man, just who decides this anyways? Who decides what's right and wrong? Jesus does because it's who he is. He is right. It's just his attribute. It's his quality. It's his name. He's right. He's true. Righteousness of God speaks of that which upholds God's worth and his value and his glory. But everything that is wrong will actually belittle God's worth and belittle his value and shame his glory. This righteousness, this upholding his worth and his value and his glory, it's through faith. We're going to see the word faith used many times in this section. We remember chapter uh, uh, 1 verse 17 that it's written that the just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And what does faith mean? Faith means to believe and to trust and to place one's full weight and confidence in. Stories told of Charles uh, Blondin, who was a tightrope walker, just amazing tightrope walker. And one day he walked across from one skyscraper to another in New York City, uh, pushing a wheelbarrow. And as he made it to the other skyscraper, just the crowd went wild and one man said, Charles, you ought to put a man in the wheelbarrow and walk back across with a man on the wheelbarrow. And Charles said, get in the wheelbarrow. But of course, the man didn't. He didn't have that much faith in Charles Brondon. And so today, you might say, I believe in Jesus. I have an orthodox view of who God is. And you know, James tells us, hey, just you got to know the demons believe in God, right? The devil believes in God. You know that, right? And, and you got to know, the devil knows that Jesus is the son of God, right? Witnessing to a Mormon this week. I believe that Jesus is the son of God. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Have you put your full weight and rest and trust in all that that means? That Jesus is both Christ and Kyrios? He is both Lord and Savior. Because I don't think that you have. I don't think you've placed your full weight in the wheelbarrow of God's salvation. Verse 23, you know, and actually at the end of verse 22, it says, there's no difference. It's to all and on all who believe. There's no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and fallen short, it means to miss the mark, the word sin. And it comes from an English archery game, you know, where the archers would stand up with their bow and arrow and they would take aim at the target and they would shoot. And if they did anything but hit an absolute bullseye, the judge would throw the flag up and say, sin, sin, you've missed the mark. And it didn't matter if you were a millimeter off the mark or if you were 30 feet off the mark. You sinned. 
missed the mark completely. If you're going to take a cruise to Hawaii and the ship sank, I might swim 100 yards farther than you, but we would both sink. If we were going to jump across Niagara Falls, you might make it 11 feet more than I do. I only make it 7 feet. But we've both fallen short and we're going to die at the base of Niagara Falls. On our best day, our best jump is not going to be enough. If you're going to hop onto a plane and try to fly to an island like Iceland, and your compass was one degree off, you know, you would miss Iceland and you would die in the frigid waters of the, you know, whatever, North Sea or whatever that is. My grandpa tells a story of when he was on his way to um, fight in World War II. He was a bombardier in a B-17 bomber, and they took their plane across the Atlantic, and they had an electric compass, and halfway through the journey across the ocean, their compass went out. And so they're just flying blind, not knowing where they are, until finally a, a group of fighter pilots happened to see them just flying around over the Atlantic, and they came and they led them home. But man, if we're not dead on in our compass calculations, if we're not flying according to the standard, if we've missed the mark in any way, if we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then the end result is death. The end result is condemnation. And that's why James tells us, if you keep the whole law and you stumble in one teeny tiny little place, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. So you might read Deuteronomy 5, verses 7 through 21. And you'll see by that tutor, you'll see by that x-ray machine that you've fallen short of the glory of God. Whether you're one degree off or a hundred degrees off, you've fallen short. Verse 24, we're being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If you've heard much of the Reformation history when Martin Luther first began his quest to Rome, he went with the question of how can a person know that they are right with God? And how can they know that they've done enough to merit grace? Which is actually an oxymoron. You can't earn grace. But it was still his question nevertheless. And after four weeks of religious observance, you know, of orthodoxy, His burden on his heart wasn't lightened, but rather deepened. The words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees, their whole job was to do nothing but keep the law. Goody two-shoes, that's what they were. And if you can't be better than them, you're not going to go to heaven. In fact, they're not even good enough to go to heaven. And Martin Luther was right to go, well, then who goes? And how can you know that you're going? I mean, he realized in himself that he couldn't produce this. And one day after reading the book of Romans, you know, he realized that it was something that God provided for those that couldn't produce it. God provides the very righteousness that he demands from people. You know, Luther had read these verses before. He'd read that the just must live by faith. And yet one day it clicked. 
One day it clicked for him. He discovered this doctrine, this gem of justification by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. He said that, man, this doctrine of justification, it's the principal article of Christian doctrine. It's the main thing and it's the plain thing. There's no more fundamental question than how can a sinful man or woman be reconciled to a holy God whose wrath is revealed from heaven against them? How can you be reconciled to this God? And when he read the book of Romans and discovered this doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ, he said it is most necessary that we should, three things, number one, know this doctrine. Number two, we should teach it to others. And number three, very Lutheran style, we need to beat it into their heads daily. How quickly we are to default to this axiom that a good God certainly must let me into heaven if I try really hard to do good things over throughout my day and hopefully by the end I've, I've had more good to outweigh the bad and he'll let me in. We fall into that every day. That's kind of our default. We've got to find ourselves approved by God through our works rather than by grace through faith in Christ. Today we're looking at justification. We're going to look at justification as well as redemption and propitiation, which are kind of the bow and the wrapping paper on the justification package. We're going to look at the meaning of these words and the ground of these words and the instrument by which these words come to pass. First of all, justification. We read about it in verse 24. That we are being justified freely by his grace. Justified. Don't ever get tired of hearing what it means. Because it's what God's provided for you. Justified speaks of the legal declaration in heaven. Where the righteous judge slams down the gavel in heaven and announces you not guilty. It's not a gradual process. But an instantaneous event where a man is declared righteous and innocent by God. It's the language of the law. Justification. A good simpleton way to remember it is justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. And we're reading about that right now. Justification. It's the declaration of a judge that a person is right in the sight of the law. That is a big verdict. A judge has a responsibility for two things. He has a responsibility to condemn the guilty, and that's what we often say, that's your job. You need to condemn the guilty. That's justice. But a judge also has the responsibility to acquit and justify the innocent. It is just as big of a job, and it is just as much justice. Can't say that word just too much, can you? O.J. Simpson, Amanda Knox, or Casey Anthony. Just a few names of people who've been acquitted. And yet just because they were declared not guilty doesn't mean they didn't do it. 
Maybe they didn't. One day we'll certainly know. We'll know the truth. But we need to know that justification is more than a simple acquittal as we know it in the earthly realm. It's actually innocence that's been given to us. That's what to be justified is. It's more than just an acquittal. It's full-blown innocence given to you. It's innocence given to OJ, even if he did it, or to Amanda Knox, or to Casey Anthony. They're given the innocence of Christ. Now, we remember from verses 9 through 20 that we were so depraved and so sinful, not one of us righteous. And you kind of even go a step before, even beyond that, and say, we actually were actively pursuing sin. That's the black backdrop. Let's look at the beautiful gem of justification uh, by grace through faith in Christ. And on this spectrum, not only are you brought up to ground zero and declared innocent, you actually have Christ's rightness imparted to you. You see, in justification at that moment in heaven where the gavel is slammed down, you're not only innocent, you're totally right. But it's not because of what you've done. It's because of what Jesus has done. Justification is the total opposite end of the spectrum from condemnation. God is acquitting the guilty. And in many of our minds, there's just that notion that our acceptance with God is this process where we do more good than bad. And eventually, hopefully, we'll quit doing certain bad things and over that period of time, finally reach that point where we're accepted by God. And to the extent of which you think that, it's the extent that we need the doctrine of justification beat into our head all the more. And I need that doctrine every day, every minute. So that's the meaning of justification. Now let's look at the grounds of justification. What's the ground that God accomplishes justification? Well, we see there in verse 24 that it is freely by his grace. It is by and in Christ Jesus to all who believe. Verse 22 shows us that. At the cross, he bore our punishment that we ourselves deserve. He's the only one that held up that righteous standard. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 21, we're told that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And then listen to this. Not to impute their trespasses to them, And then as you jump down to verse 21, it says, He made him who knew no sin be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he didn't impute trespasses upon those who would believe, but not only that, he would impute their trespasses upon himself. That's what we've called the great exchange in our previous studies. That's what uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is. That God, who knew no sin, was made sin for us, took our sin upon him, and we got to have all of his righteousness and innocence and perfection put into our account. That's the great exchange. That's the glorious good news of the gospel. And because of that, Luther says, we need to think about Jesus on the cross regularly. 
Not that he's still on the cross. He's resurrected. He's in glory in the heavens, ever living to make intercession for you and for me. But we need to learn to remember the price that he paid, not only for acquittal, but for our declaration of righteousness and absolute innocence. Who doesn't love the hymn? In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. It's in Christ alone that I have stability. He's my foundation. I can stand on him, as Romans is going to show us later on, I think it's chapter 5, that by grace we stand in his presence on a foundation. We have access to the throne room of God. In Christ alone we have that foundation. In Christ alone we have that access. And not one action of ours. Luther needed to be born again. And if a monk like Luther, who would read his Bible all the time, or had absolutely religious orthodoxy, if that wasn't enough, then where do you stand? If he realized that he had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and needed to be justified freely, how about you? We see that that grounds comes freely by his grace. We don't deserve it. We don't relate to God by what we deserve. We're not justified by praying, by standing up, by sitting down, by lighting candles, by blowing them out, by lifting our hands during worship, by wearing holy underwear. But we've been given a free gift, justified freely by his grace. The freedom was costly. It cost God his life. It cost him his blood. It cost him 33 years of him setting aside the privileges of deity to live amongst his creation who sought to kill him and mock him, spit upon him, rip his beard out, place a crown of thorns in his head, rip him with a Roman phlegorum, beat him with a rod in the face, pin him to a tree, this freedom was costly. If you've seen the World War II movie Band of Brothers, you might remember that there was a, a man named Don Malarkey. True story of, a Don, of Don Malarkey, who's from Oregon, actually, and who flew, uh, jumped out with the 101st Airborne back in World War II over in Europe. And he actually had the longest stint with Easy Company during World War II, jumping out of the plane on D-Day in Normandy and then fighting all the way through the Battle of the Bulge, going some 90 days at one time without a shower, you know, and finally at the end of the war, finding himself up at Hitler's eagle's nest. Uh, and, uh, and I, you know, he still lives in Oregon. I don't think he's died yet, but I got to go hear him speak in Corvallis a few years ago with my grandpa, the World War II bombardier, just a special time for me. But one thing I remember in Don Malarkey's speech is just he had this picture on a big screen behind him of him and his buddies jumping out of a plane and just the the banner across it said that freedom isn't free freedom isn't free you know we as americans we love the freedom that we have the religious freedom and i think as time goes on we just forget you know the price that people have paid to give us what we have now the blood 
you know, the lives, the sacrifice, the sweat, you know, just a major sacrifice. And yet, multiply that by a billion, zillion, gazillion, you know, and you have Jesus who sacrificed more than we can ever imagine, more than we could even on our worst war story imagine, so that through him the world might be reconciled to him. The freedom that we have, this free justification wasn't free. It cost Jesus his life. In verses 22, 26, and 30, we have the means of justification, that it's through faith in Jesus to all and on all who believe. Faith is not the grounds of your justification, but it's the means by which you obtain justification. As Wayne Grudem said in his uh, systematic theology book, faith is the one attitude of the heart that is the exact opposite of depending upon ourselves. It's the exact opposite of getting out our list of references that we have, like we do in our job applications, you know, and and here's all the reasons why you should hire me. Look at me and look at what I've done. And so often we relate to God in that way. Look at, here's what I've done. You really owe it to me. But really when we come by faith, it's the exact opposite. We rip up that, you know, list of references and recommendations and say, I got nothing. You've got everything. We have this justification through faith. Faith not in faith, and faith not in rituals and rules and in heritage, but in Jesus. It's that sitting down faith, that resting faith, that getting in the wheelbarrow faith. And three things about that. First of all, in this justification Don't let any supposed goodness on your part keep you back from admitting that you are a sinner who's in desperate need of a savior. Secondly, don't let your baggage hold you back. The enemy's right here in this room and he's telling you every sin you've ever committed, trying to condemn you and make you feel like you could never come and be forgiven of your sins by Jesus. Don't let your baggage hold you back. And thirdly, don't resist what the Holy Spirit is calling you to do. He's calling you to turn from your sins, to repent of your sins, and to just sit down and rest in Jesus. And so we have justification. We're justified freely by his grace. And then we have redemption. It's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption speaks of being set free because of a ransom price paid. It's the idea of a slave market. You know, in American slavery, it was often just the African people that were shipped over from Africa and sold. But in the ancient world, it was chapter 11 bankruptcy. If you had debt, you became the slave to the person that you owed it to. And like we studied last week, we are all under sin in verse 9. We are all slaves of sin. Go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Hosea, where God told Hosea, I want to make your life a picture of the gospel. If I could just paraphrase. (laughs) Go and marry a prostitute. Yes, a prostitute. I'm just letting you know she's going to be willingly unfaithful. She's going to play the harlot. Willingly. She's going to have children from other men and eventually leave you. 
Just like humanity, we turn aside from God to seek after the created thing. Hosea goes to this slave auction that she ends up in and buys her. People were bidding there with sheaves of barley. And Hosea bids some barley and oil and says, even though you've been unfaithful to me, I've bought you back. Now God did the same thing, and yet he didn't reach in with oil or barley or coins of silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. He's purchased us from the slavery block of sin, whose wages ended in death. What did Gomer do for salvation in her harlotry, in her slavery? She did nothing. That's exactly what we have. We have nothing to offer, nothing to give. So there's redemption that's in Christ Jesus. He's bought us off of the slave block, the auction block. Verse 25, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. The third uh, word that's kind of the bow on top of this free gift of justification is the word propitiation. Now the meaning of propitiation speaks of appeasing the wrath of an offended person. Or it's the act of taking the place and penalty of another. Now the wrath of God is appeased in propitiation. This blood of Jesus, it's the propitiation acts as a lightning rod, catching the lightning and dealing with it appropriately. That's what the blood of Jesus has done in appeasing the wrath of God. In the Hebrew, propitiation and mercy seat are synonymous. You remember when the Ark of the Covenant was built, there was the, the cap at the top of the Ark surrounded by the two angels, the cherubim. That was called the mercy seat. And the blood was to be sprinkled upon the mercy seat. A picture of Jesus' blood, you know, as he stands between the two cherubim in his throne. His blood providing that atonement for our sin. The appeasing of wrath uh, um, because of our sin. His sacrifice, his blood appeasing the sin. That's the meaning of propitiation. The grounds of propitiation is said right there in verse 25. It's by his blood and then the means of that propitiation, the channel or the conduit that the propitiation comes is uh, through faith. Through faith. Resting, trusting, believing on what Jesus has done. His justification, his redemption, his propitiation, it all, as verse 25 says, demonstrates his righteousness. It's all a demonstration of his righteousness. That it is good that the blood of this innocent man take away the wrath of God. To those that have faith, you're freed from the condemnation that was sent your way, that was coming your way. Verse 26 says, this demonstrates at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And where is the boasting then? It's excluded. By what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. 
When you know that there is nothing that you can bring to the table to appease the wrath of God, there is no right work that you can do to satisfy his wrath, but you realize that Jesus paid it all and you have to rest in him, you have to surrender to him and trust in him to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be sanctified. There's no boasting in that. There's no boasting. Where is the boasting? God gets all the glory. First Corinthians chapter one tells us that God uses the weak and the foolish and the base things of the world, that he would get all of the glory. And Isaiah, we're told that I am God, I alone am he, and I will not share my glory with another. So you be careful if you're thinking about standing before God on judgment day with your references of good little things that you've done. Tear that list up now and receive through faith the free gift of justification. Let's go ahead and set our things aside and Stuart can come up. You know, in the book of Philippians, Paul says that all of the things that I had on my reference list, all the things that were gained to me, I've counted loss for Christ. Literally, it speaks of that if I were to bring this list up, it would damage the reconciliation process. He said, but indeed, I've counted all of these things loss for Christ. I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is in the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. Do you have that this morning? Do you have the righteousness of God imputed into your account? Are you relying on anything that you've done to appease God? any religious background, any heritage, any good deed that you've done, any donation or contribution that you've made? You fall short of the glory of God in that. Have you been justified? Have you? I want you to think about this. Have you been justified? One guy said, you know, you might not, you don't need to know the day that you were justified. You remember the year and the season and what the weather was outside. But you need to know, have you been justified? If I ask you if you've been married and you say you don't know, we've got a problem. <laughs> if I ask you if you've been justified and you don't know, you've got a problem. Have you been justified? Has the gavel slammed down and your innocence and your righteousness been proclaimed? If not, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of justification. Like a little child, you can just come to the Father. You can come to the cross. And you can just receive this awesome gift of justification, of redemption, of propitiation. Right now where you're at, we're going to take communion during worship. We're going to remember the blood of Jesus that was shed for our sins. We're going to remember the, the body of Jesus that was broken in our place. We're going to remember that but now phrase. But now. We've been freed. In Christ, we've been freed. 
not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. Lord, we thank you for the blood that was shed there in Jerusalem. It should have been my blood. It should have been our blood. Thank you for being that sacrifice. We thank you for your body, Lord. The word becoming flesh, bearing my sin and death bearing the whip marks of the Roman flagorum, bearing the thorn pricks from the crown of thorns and the nail-pierced hands and feet and the spear in the side, Lord, and so much more. It should have been us. Thank you for dying, Lord, that we could be free, that we could be justified freely. Lord, as we take communion right now, show us sin that we need to repent of, that we need to confess, we need to be forgiven of. Show us any self-righteousness that we've been boasting of. Show us that black backdrop, Lord, by your spirit. But Lord, show us your kindness and your goodness and your patience with us, Lord, and lead to repentance in this room. By your spirit, for your glory, in Jesus' name. As you're ready, you can come forward and grab communion. Just take it back to your seat. Just confess sin before the Lord and worship him, proclaim his death and his resurrection. Let's worship him through communion today. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.